We're in this season called Lent. We're coming up to the most important parts of it that lead up to the death of Christ. It's the greatest event in history. There's nothing in history at all that outshines this that we're looking at. And part of that's necessary for us is to allow the Holy Spirit to help us. You have nothing, and I have nothing that we can compare. We've never seen anybody crucified. And so we have nothing in our memory that can help us. And so what we should do is ask the Holy Spirit to paint a picture in our mind and to put the picture in there. That's what the Spirit does. Jesus said, the Spirit will come and he'll show you the things that are true of me. And if we want to really understand these next couple weeks and what's going on, then we ask the Spirit to help us and paint a picture in our minds. And so you have to use your imagination when you come to this part because you have no, nothing in your life that's quite like it. Nobody ever did. There's nothing that anybody's ever done that's been like what Jesus did. And so it's an important time of the year. We're talking about the the most important things that ever were, and it is the beating heart of what we believe. And so I hope you can allow the Spirit to help you to understand some of these deep things. We're at chapter Luke 22. Luke 22 for our text today. We're in Friday morning, in the wee hours of the morning of Passion Week. Luke will take us there. <clears throat> it was one Thanksgiving season that I heard someone say, if you want to be thankful, consider how many days you've been in good health, not how many days you've been sick. <laughs> and that is true. Uh, Most of my life I've been healthy and feeling good. Only a small minority of days I've been sick. And so uh, most of my life I've been pain-free, and I thank God for that. And the occasional twisted ankle or bruised knee, what I would call the normal aches and pains of life, have come. I've seen some of you uh, struggling with a worn-out knee or hip joint, feeling the pain. As you move around, I guess the most painful thing that I ever happened to me was a bad tooth. I remember one night, it was midnight, and my father was coming up my stairs. And he came into my bedroom. And I wondered, what is he doing at midnight? And he said, do you have any pliers? And I thought, why does he need pliers at midnight? So I said, well, yeah, why? He said, I want you to take a pair and pull my tooth out. (laughs) Well, I didn't use pliers to pull his tooth out. Uh, But when I got a toothache, I wish somebody would take pliers and pull mine out too. It was an exquisite pain that captured and held all my attention. One thing for sure, I couldn't think of anything else. And somebody did take pliers and pull my tooth out. It was a dentist. So I said, 
a good riddance to that old thing. I suppose the most pain I ever saw in a person was a lady who used to attend this church. Her name was Muriel Daniels, and she was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Within two months, she was admitted into the hospice house in Albion. But she loved church so much that she checked out a hospice every Sunday morning and came to church, and she sat right in front of me, right there in that pew. And as I was talking, I'd see her experience a wave of pain, and she'd clench her fist and shrink down in pain five or six times in a service. She'd feel that intense pain. And then she'd straighten up and keep listening. After three or four weeks, she could no longer come to church. I went to see her in the hospice house. She had the same pain episodes there. Eventually, she was bedridden. And the last time I saw her, she was lying in bed in pain with her eyes closed. And her mouth was moving. And I leaned over put my ear right next to her lips, and she was whispering, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I'd never seen anyone who so experienced so much pain as Muriel Daniels. I realized that traumatic accidents can cause so much pain that people go into shock. The body shuts down sort of a way the body protects itself. But most pain on that Scale is temporary. Doctors and drugs help to relieve pain, and we can cope with it. In our text today, we find a case of extreme pain. And I must say, when I read it, it is riveting to me. When I read the passage, I can't get away from its description of the pain. And it screams off the page and demands my attention. And it won't let me ignore it, but demands that I focus on that pain. Other preachers skip over it or try to explain it away. I cannot. I must look at it and think about it. Luke, the author, was a doctor. And I'm sure he was chosen by God because he too was fascinated by what he explained in the text. Now last week we looked at the Last Supper and how Jesus changed it and gave us the service we call communion. That was on Thursday night of Passion Week. And after that meal was over, somewhere around midnight, Jesus and his 11 disciples left the upper room and walked through the dark streets of Jerusalem, out through the gates of the city, and up onto the Mount of Olives. And so we will pick it up, the story, right at that point. I'm at Luke chapter 22 and verse number 39. And he, that is Jesus, came out and went as he was wont to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples also followed him. The phrase, as he was wont, is an old English phrase that we don't use anymore. What it means is he went as was his habit to go up onto the Mount of Olives in the evening hours to a special place 
called the Garden of Gethsemane, a terraced off part on the side of the Mount of Olives there with a stone fence and a gate that made it a private garden as he was wont or a place Jesus often visited. Verse number 40. And when he was at the place, he said unto them, Pray that ye enter not into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast, and he kneeled down and prayed. So we know that he left eight of the disciples at the gate of the garden. He took Peter, James, and John further into the garden. Then he left those three and went by himself another 50 yards or so into the garden, and by himself he begins to pray, verse 42, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He knows that he's about to fulfill his mission, which was to die for the sins of the world. He also knows how he will die, on a cross, but as he looks into the cup, which is a way of saying he looks into the future at his mission, at what he's about to do, as he looks into the cup and he views his mission like a cup, a cup that's full, and his father gives it to him and says, drink the whole thing. Drink the whole cup. I have a mission for you. It's like a cup. You have to drink the whole cup. And as he looks into the cup, he shrinks back and he prays, Father, do we have to go through with this? Now, my friends, I have to ask a question. What does he see in that cup? What does he see in the future that makes him shrink back? Some repulsive event stares back at him, causing him to be repulsed by what the future holds. And as we sit for a minute, and we wonder, as we reflect, what does he see in that cup? Suddenly, In a burst of intensity, the storyline becomes magnified a hundred times. As if the volume is suddenly turned way up. Or the picture in a moment of spontaneous combustion burst into flame. Verse 43. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony... He prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. There it is, that captivating phrase, being in an agony. The dictionary defines agony as great mental or physical pain with a strong outburst of emotion. He's suddenly in agony and intense pain. 
He falls down on the ground, reeling from the agony. And he cries out from the intense pain. Obviously, now, it's not a physical ailment that has sent him to what looks like convulsions. It's some mental trauma that has sent him into shock. And his body is shaking and his emotions burst forth as he feels the agony and the pain grip his body. And as I stare at it in amazement, at his agony, I see it and I cry out, Tell us, tell us, Jesus, what did you see in that cup? Why the agony that gripped your body with such an intensity? What did you see in the cup? Now there are many opinions about what he saw. Some people say he saw his own death and that caused his agony. No, I don't believe it. He knew that three and a half years ago, he was going to die when John the Baptist said, Behold, a Lamb of God. He came to die. He's known all along and he's not afraid to die. No, this is something he feels and it's something shocking. The mental torture is sending his physical body into convulsions and he shudders with the agony of it all. What makes his pain? What was in the cup? And so we search for an answer. Isaiah tells us in chapter 53, he made his soul an offering for sin. But Paul takes it one step further in 2 Corinthians chapter number 5. Paul describes what happened to him. 2 Corinthians 5 and 21. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That is, the Father made Jesus to be sin for us. He was made to be sin. All the sins of all the world were to be laid on Him. And He, as a substitute for us, would become guilty of every sin ever committed. In the cup. In the future, only a couple of hours away on the cross, he would take on him the sins of the whole world, every sin ever committed. And his pure soul and his holy heart and his sinless being looked at all that sin and all that rebellion, and all that twisted and perverted evil imagination 
of all the world. And he shrunk back in horror. And he shudders in agony at the repulsive mass of man's sin. And he cries out in pain as he sees in the cup all that he will be guilty of when he goes to the cross. As the Lamb of God, he was to die as a substitute. Like all the lambs that had ever been sacrificed, they were substitutions. Your sin transferred on to the Lamb. And he would pay for every sin ever committed. From the very beginning, when Adam and Eve, in defiance of God's rule, reach out and pick the forbidden fruit and eat it, Jesus must pay. And Cain, as he reaches out and strikes down his brother, crushing his head and killing Abel, And the feel of the guilt is on Jesus. He must pay. And in sin and defiance, we go through the Bible. Old King Manasseh erects a giant statue right in the middle of God's temple. And the whole nation of Israel, as they turn and worship Baal by sacrificing a baby in the fire. And Jesus must pay. Every vicious murder, every abused child, Jesus must pay. Every violent rape, every cruel act of violence, Jesus must pay. He sees it in the cup and he shudders and he shrinks back in horror. But not only must he pay for the sins of the past before him, he will also pay for all the sins in the future after him. And in the cup, you see, there's much more than that. In the cup, in the future, an immense number of sins that he must pay for. Did he see into the future? Yes, I'm sure he did. He was shocked by the vast number of people tortured and starved to death His own Jewish people, how many? Hundreds, thousands? No, no, more and more. Six million Jews gassed and murdered in the concentration camps of Hitler's Germany. And he must pay. But it doesn't end there. Farther into the future, here's the cries of small voices. And the volume grows louder and louder. Tiny voices whose lives were snuffed out. Not thousands, not millions, but millions and millions of unborn babies murdered in the womb. 40, 50, 60 million voices in a society that claims they have the right to murder unborn babies. And he cries out in agony and pain as he looks ahead and his body reacts to the violence on the magnitude of the sin that's in the cup. And he falls on his knees and his body feels a shock wave and the blood vessels burst open inside of him. And out of his forehead, the blood drips out of his sweat glands 
and great drops of blood, it says, fall to the ground and fall down his face and into his beard and cover his clothes. It's a phenomenon only seen a handful of times in human history. Such traumatic shock that the nervous system breaks down and he bleeds from the face and forehead. And usually when that happens, it kills the person who experiences that kind of agonizing shock. And so the Bible tells us an angel came down to give him strength to help him to survive the agony of the bloody face of Jesus. He became sin for us. He was to be guilty in our place. And the immensity of human sin is overwhelming and unimaginable. And covered in blood and sweat, he lifts his eyes to heaven and he says, not my will, but thine be done. And thus he made his soul an offering for sin. His pure and lovely soul shrinks back in horror as he allows the guilt of human sin to be transferred to him. And the response can only be described as agony. And Peter and James and John, 50 yards away, can hear his voice as he weeps in loud voices and cries out in prayer. They have never seen him in such an agony. And full of sorrow, it says, they closed their eyes and fell asleep. Now when I look at him, and when I see his agony, and I'm watching it and imagining it. All I can think to do is to cry out to him, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. I wish I could alleviate the pain, do something to lift the heavy load, lighten his burden by making sure I never sin again, by making sure I never do anything that will add to his agony. I'm thankful that he died for me, so thankful, but I'm sorry, so sorry to cause him such pain. But Dr. Luke has done a brilliant piece of writing. It's a masterpiece. He has wrapped this story of Jesus' suffering in Gethsemane with another story. As we see Jesus' agony in the garden, we realize how repulsive were the sins of man to Jesus. We find another story unfolds that will teach us to see how calloused and hard is the heart because of sin. So let's look at the story that Dr. Luke begins first in the upper room and trace this story as it unfolds. Luke chapter 22, verse number 31. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. And he said unto him, Lord, I'm ready to go with thee both to prison and to death. And he said, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. 
Jesus has a short conversation with Peter at the Last Supper at the table in the upper room. Judas Iscariot has left the room to go and betray Jesus to the chief priests and scribes and Pharisees. And then Jesus turns to Peter and he says, you're next. You're next. Satan has set his eye on you. He already took Judas. Now he wants you to beat you into a pulp and sift you like wheat. He wants to have you next. But I prayed for you, Peter, that you could stand the test. And Peter says, don't worry, Jesus. i die for you. I'll never betray you. I'll never fail you. Trust in me. And Jesus said, before the rooster crows, you will deny that you ever knew me, and you will do it three times. So Jesus gives Peter a double warning. First, Satan wants to control you. Beware, Peter, beware. And second, before morning and the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. A double warning. But there's more warning. As Jesus goes to pray in Gethsemane, he tells Peter, now Peter, pray. You got to pray, Peter. Pray hard. You are about to face a real trial. It's a dangerous crisis that's going to unfold. So pray, Peter, and ask God to help you. And Jesus goes himself and prays. And he comes back, and Peter's sleeping. And he shakes Peter. And he tries to wake him up. He says, Peter, you must pray. Trouble is coming. Pray for help, Peter. Peter, rise and pray. It's all to no avail. When Jesus comes back the third time, Peter has fallen asleep again. And Jesus said, you might as well go ahead and sleep. Just then, Jesus sees Judas coming up the side of the Mount of Olives with a group of men carrying torches. Jesus is arrested and taken into custody. And about an hour later, Peter is in the courtyard of Caiaphas, the high priest. Verse 55. When they kindled a fire in the midst of the hall, were set down together, Peter sat down among them. But a certain maid beheld him as he sat by the fire and earnestly looked upon him and said, This man was also with him. He denied him, saying, Woman, I know him not. After a little while, another saw him and said, Thou art also of them. And Peter said, Man, I am not. About the space of one hour, another confidently affirmed, saying, Of a truth, this fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. And Peter said, Man, I know not what thou sayest. And immediately, well, he yet spake the cock crew. Warning after warning was given to Peter by Jesus himself. Satan wants you. He will sift you. You will deny me. Pray, Peter. Trouble is on the way. Warning after warning. And Peter constantly says, don't worry about me. I will never fail you, Lord. About an hour later, a young girl said, 
I think I saw you with him. He says, not me. You're mistaken. And another short while, another girl says, he was with Jesus. No, I don't even know him. I've never met him. And then after an hour or so, a third challenge, you speak Galilean. Your speech betrays you. Mark's gospel says that Peter began to curse and swear. And he turns in anger says, I never knew that man. My friends, sin is such a habit for us. It's got such a grip on us. Peter was warned over and over and even told exactly how he would sin. And an hour later, cursing and swearing, he says, I don't even know that man called Jesus. Sin has such a grip on us, it's so much a part of our nature that warnings go unheeded, urges to pray are ignored. Precise words exactly describe the attempt to trap Peter, but blind as a bat, he walks right into the trap. Sin has such a power over Peter, he can't avoid it and he can't escape it. It's that blind sin now that Jesus also must pay for on the cross. That sin so tightly wound into our character. So much a part of our nature that we do it without thinking. Jesus must carry that sin too and pay for it. Even when we say, I'll never do that again. Like Peter, an hour later we do it again and again and again. So Jesus, repulsed by the immensity and magnitude of men's sin, agonizes and prays and bleeds over it. Peter, warned and urged and instructed, goes right out and repeats the sin three times with not a thought that Jesus had just told him exactly what he would do. Verse 61. The Lord turned and looked upon Peter Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he said unto him, Before the cock crows, thou shalt deny me thrice. Peter went out and wept bitterly. Jesus, on trial in Caiaphas' house, hears the rooster crow the second time and turns and looks out the porch window to where Peter has just been cursing and swearing and it says he made eye contact with Peter. And Peter suddenly remembers the warning, the sifting of Satan, the urges to pray, and the trigger that awakens Peter's conscience is a crowing rooster. He runs out of the courtyard into the darkness. It's his turn now to weep. Shocked by his own failure, he runs and hides, and he realizes Satan has just delivered a crushing blow. I've let down my best friend, and I'm a failure. My sin has such a grip on me, I can't shake it. I'm a failure, and he hides in a dark place for the rest of the day and the day after. Peter got a good look at his own self and his own sin, and it shocked him. Jesus got a good look at the sins of the whole world 
and it shocked him. Sin is a shocking thing. And what are we going to do about it? How can we ever shake off its grip? The old song says it the best. Depths of mercy. Can there be mercy still reserved for me? Can my God his wrath forbear? And me the chief of sinners spare? I have long withstood his grace, long provoked him to his face, would not hearken to his call, and grieved him with a thousand falls. What do we do? Lord, incline me to repent. Let me now my sin lament, deeply my revolt deplore. Weep, believe, and sin no more. And there for me, the Savior stands. Shows his wounds. Spreads his hands. God is love, I know I feel. Jesus weeps and loves me still. Can you feel the need? Can you sense the grip of sin on your life? Do you hear the warning? Do you realize the danger? Satan wants you too. He wants me. But Jesus, in an act of infinite mercy, has offered to take away all your guilt. He's offered to pay for all your sins. To be punished for your sins. So he agreed to pay for every sin ever committed. And that's a lot of sin. But the Bible tells us where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. If you could remember, if you could count all of your sins, it may be a very large number, but eventually you could count them all. But the grace of Jesus is infinite. No number can count it. It goes on forever. And there in Gethsemane's garden, Jesus counted every sin. And though it were a staggering number, he bowed his head and prayed to his Father, Not my will, but thine be done. He agreed to pay our debt so we could be free. The pain and the agony was more than any man ever felt. And he sweat his blood for you and for me. And when he finishes his praying, full of peace, calmly faces the enemy. He has agreed to lift all of our burdens. Old Isaiah the prophet masterfully put it. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
What a Savior He is. What a blessing to us poor sinners. What a freedom He offers to us. Will you accept the gifts He offers? Will you make Jesus the ruler of your heart and the king of your life? He was in agony for you and for me, for which I am grateful beyond all measure. Thank you, Jesus, for the pain and suffering and for the forgiveness and for the peace of God that I have because of it, which passes all understanding. I pray you will partake of the peace of mind that he offers so freely. Shall we pray? Dear Heavenly Father, we look at you and what you've done is a hard stretch of our minds to get it in our thoughts. But we pray that your spirit will enlighten us that we may see these things and recognize just how good you were to us. We got nothing to offer bound into our character are these things. But we know that you can help us when we throw ourselves on your mercy and on your grace. And know that Jesus weeps and loves me still. Thank you. We thank you for that. Down the bottom of our hearts, we can never thank you enough. We thank you for what you've done. Bless us, Lord, as we think about these things. Come up to the wonderful things in the time that we spend about it thinking. Bless us, open our minds, and make us worthy of all you did for us, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. In closing, like you turn in your hymn book, if you will, page number 93. Standing as we sing, page number 93. Hallelujah, what a Savior.
hallelujah, what a Savior. He took on the burden of every vile and awful thing we have done. Our thoughts, our words, our actions, the things that we have done, even though we swear we will not do them again. You have taken them all. You drank the cup to the very bottom, the last drop. You did it for us. All we need to do is just ask that forgiveness. Come to you. You have promised pardon, full and free, rich. We can be forgiven. Pray that every heart in this place would come to you this day and ask for forgiveness. Cleanse us. Make us whole. May we know the peace of Christ in our heart. We ask for these things and we ask for a deeper understanding about you and what you have done. We pray for all of this. We ask for help, guidance as we go out into the world that we would go and sin no more. Teach us your ways. Be with us and protect us and guide us and bring us back to this place with a greater and deeper desire for you, we pray in your name.